Hello and welcome to Health in a Handbasket, your podcast about the sexy world of healthcare engineering. I'm Fidi Sakta and I'll be your host. I'm the Marketing and Community Manager at UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And although I don't always understand what's written in the research papers published by our academics, I know that what we're doing in the world of healthcare engineering is important and impactful. And I want to share that with you by speaking to those who know a bit more about it than me. In today's handbasket, we'll be picking out the topic of medical imaging, so how we can see inside the body. I once had an x-ray, and that was because I used to be such a little headache for my mum. I did this thing where I thought I could fly, and so I stood on the top flight of the stairs and just jumped and <laughs> thought that would be a good thing. Anyway, I broke my arm. It was like, you know, hanging off my arm. Went uh, to the hospital, got an x-ray done and had a really ugly looking kind of cast. Like it wasn't cool like it was in, in TV shows. It was just like this ugly fabric sling. Um, so that's my little experience of uh, medical imaging <laughs> and x-rays. But we're going to find out a lot more about medical imaging with the help of Charlotte and Lee who are here with me today and who were semi-laughing at my little anecdote. <laughs> I'll introduce Charlotte and Liam. So Charlotte is looking for the light, I guess. Um, she's a qualified veterinary surgeon and a medical physics research scientist. In the lab, she looks for signs of tendon injury using x-rays. And outside the lab, you're passionate about science communicating and spending a lot of time teaching primary school children about visible light and Liam and Charlotte so Liam's in the room with us as well they know each other because Charlotte was Liam's supervisor great supervisor of that <laughs> yes. yeah he has to say that now. <laughs> <laughs> and Liam's in uh, research involves seeing into the human brain so Liam's work straddles several different research areas including engineering physics psychology and neuroscience and outside of research Liam likes to talk about being Welsh <laughs> and teaching other people how to speak Welsh so you're going to speak a few words of Welsh at the end of this, aren't you? I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. going to be the highlight of the show. You know, nothing else matters. I've not heard him speak Welsh, from... so I'm excited too. <laughs> Seeing into the body sounds very science fiction, but it's not really because I'm sure a lot of our audience would be familiar with a lot of these terms. Like I mentioned, x-rays and ultrasounds. So what are some of the ways that we can see into the body? So I work with x-rays and like you said, you were clearly an accident prone child. I can relate. My mum can probably also relate to the anxiety of your mum in terms of me constantly falling over and having x-rays all the time. And most of us are probably reasonably familiar with at least what an x-ray looks like. And most of us understand that if a doctor sends us for an x-ray in general, it's because they want to see our bones. And the reason that we can see bones on x-rays when we go to a hospital is because bones are really really good at stopping x-rays from traveling through the body in the same way as if you were to imagine holding a torch and putting your hand in front of it you can make shadow puppets which is one of my five-year-old's favorite pastimes is to make crocodiles and birds on the wall as a shadow puppet and x-rays work in the same kind of way in that they can travel through certain materials and certain things and parts of our body but they can't travel through other parts of the body so that's how a general x-ray works in a hospital and that's certainly one of the ways that we currently use 
to look inside of the body. Now, the research that I do, we also recognise that x-rays, as well as being stopped by certain parts of the body, also change direction a really, really teeny tiny bit. And we are talking tiny, tiny, tiny amounts that you just cannot see with the naked eye. You need specialist equipment to be able to detect that. And if we can, with our research, what we're trying to do is work out how much that x-ray has changed direction as it travels through your body and try and make a picture out of that. And the reason we want to do that is because we want to understand bits of the body that we can't normally see on an x-ray. So a normal x-ray, we get to see bones and hard things. So if you were to, and I, this is one thing I did not do, like swallow a coin or something like that, you'd be able to see that because it's made of metal and that metal is super good at stopping those x-rays. But we can't really see a lot of the kind of soft, squishy stuff that's inside mm. of us. So that's what my research does. But there are loads of other ways to look inside the body and certainly ultrasound is one of them. Again, super familiar I'm currently sat here like eight months pregnant so I've had plenty of ultrasounds in the past few months to look at my baby MRI is another and Liam works with some really interesting novel ways of looking inside the body yeah I think the sort of the techniques I work with you wouldn't find them in a clinic certainly not just yet if you've ever got a torch and you've put it next to your hand or a, a bright torch now put it next to your hand or next to your finger you can see uh, that your hand would light up red. It would basically glow red. What's happening there is the light's going into your hand. That light is being absorbed, except the red bit. Uh, white light basically contains all the different colours, all the colours of the rainbow, let's say. And what blood does is it absorbs all the colours that aren't red. That's why blood is red. Um, now, what happens as well when we shine light into human tissue is it does what we call scatter. In general, for sort of conventional X-ray imaging, uh, you can think that the X-rays travelled in a straight line. That's why Charlotte's research is so cool, because it looks at slight deviations uh, in, in how the X-rays travel. But by and large, you can think they travel in a straight line. Visible light goes into the hand and the light is basically a huge scramble. So what happens is blood can absorb light relatively well when we're thinking of visible light and also light that's just beyond the visible spectrum bit of GCSE physics there into what we call the near infrared range which is between the visible uh, visible wavelengths of light and the infrared wavelengths of light. So what my research looks at is how we can use light to see changes in blood flow in the brain. Now, this is really important because when a, a, a region of the brain is activated, it uses more oxygen. So to cope with that increase in the amount of uh, oxygen that's being used, more oxygenated blood is shunted towards that activated part of the brain. What that means is more light will be absorbed in an activated part of the brain compared to when we're at rest. So if we put a load of mini torches, what we'd call sources of light and detectors of light on the head, we can see where in the brain has been activated by seeing these changes in oxygenated blood in the brain. So that's what my research looks at. Okay, so how does that look like? Like, give me practical, in, like, let me see it in my head. So for the for, so for the method I've been working on, the method I've been developing, I've built a cap and it's made out of uh, neoprene. So that's the same material as a wetsuit if you've ever, if you've ever been surfing. And this, this neoprene has mini sources, you think, can think of them as like mini torches and mini sensors of light stitched into it. And so when you shine light onto the scalp, 
Uh, that light will travel through the skin and the skull and into the brain. And this concept of, of looking at changes in blood flow in the brain, that's very similar to what something like functional MRI would look at. Um, but what my research tries to do is get the information we could get from a very expensive, restrictive MRI scanner, but do that in an environment uh, where it's unrestricted, where we can see people do interesting, natural things. Uh, and that's why a lot of my research finds big applications in looking at the baby brain. Babies don't want to stay still. They don't want to lie down. <laughs> so what I do in my work is put this cap on a baby's head, uh, get them to sit on their parents' lap and watch some videos on a screen. Now, one day I hope to do more interesting things rather than just showing videos on a screen. But that's the basic setup. You put a cap on, it shines light into the head and that's how you get information back. And as a parent whose child has been involved in research that has used the technology that Liam is using, my son was three at the time that we did the experiment and he found it really comfortable and we have some very funny pictures of him in this it looks a bit like a swimming cap almost doesn't yeah, it like yeah. a spotty swimming cap yeah. almost and he was having an absolute whale of a time so the kids weirdly i imagine adults would probably think that it's a lot more uncomfortable than it is mm. well my my niece came in when she was about six months old oh. and uh yeah she had a great she had a great time she she you know she i, I and most, most of the babies that i that, that i've worked with you know they tolerate the cat very well um so yeah so that's really so that's really cool that that we've got a way to look at the baby brain that is also baby friendly which can't be said for some other methods to look at the brain so i guess charlotte what do your experiments look like so those of you who've had x-rays before in the past, what would normally happen is you would be invited to either sit up on the table or put your arm on the table or put a finger on the table or whatever it is that the doctor is trying to look at. And the x-rays would come down from above, from the source, go through whatever they're trying to look at and be detected by some sort of detector which will sit underneath or within the table somewhere. But that's sort of a basic setup. So we're very used to, in these situations, just walking into a room Room, sticking a body part on a table mm. and they're becoming an x-ray 10 so minutes I, later the x-rays on top of your head kind absolutely of thing. Yeah. yeah so they're above now when we take it into the laboratory things look a little bit different if you were to again have an x-ray in a clinic it's not unreasonable to think that a doctor could x-ray pretty much like half of your leg or your whole arm in one x-ray so ours is very small we're looking at about four ish centimeters squared and instead of having the x-rays coming from above the sample, they come from the side, say the left-hand side, travel through my sample and go to the detector. But we also have extra bits and pieces to help us detect these tiny changes in direction of the x-rays. All of those modifications are there purely so that we are able to try and work out how much the x-rays have changed direction. And they give us a better idea and make it a little bit easier for us. But essentially... The kit is very similar to what you would see in a hospital, but with a few modifications that make it hopefully a little bit more useful to see some of the soft, yeah. squishy stuff inside our body. And all of that kind of helps you see all the bits in your hand apart from bone. So we can still see the bone because the mm. x-rays do still get absorbed. We can't mm. stop them getting absorbed at mm. the end of the day unless we were to massively change the energy. What we want to do is to be able to also detect some of the things that are a little bit trickier. So for me, I'm specifically looking at tendons, which are the soft parts of your body that connect your bones to your muscles and essentially 
make you move but other things that other people in my group have looked at are things like uh, breast cancer diagnosis and seeing whether we can better identify how that is invading into the normal tissue mm. around it other people have looked at esophaguses apparently also correct to say esophagi i was going to ask yeah. i can't decide which i prefer <laughs> they both sound ridiculous <laughs> esophagi i'm gonna stick with so some people have looked at esophagi to see whether we can see different layers in those mm -hmm. but also we've used the technique for things like security scanning has been done in the past I think that was published and um, one of my colleagues looked at what we call composite materials so things that like I think she was looking at like aircraft materials and things like that but sort of layered materials mm. to see whether you can see various cracks and things so it's not just got use in the medical field but my interest is mm. specifically in the medical field and I I like a bit of tendons so that's what <laughs> I'm looking for. So Charlotte why do you why do you look into tendons? So tendon disease is one of the most widely presented problems to a GP but actually currently we don't really have a great and easily accessible way of diagnosing it um, and also it's around about 50% of athletes in their life will injure their tendons so it's a huge huge problem and we don't really have a great way of detecting really tiny bits of damage within the tendon so that's essentially what I'm trying to do is is there a better way mm. to detect tendon damage much earlier on in the disease process or detect tiny damage that we thought healed through treatment but actually hasn't so that's the main reason that I do what I do is that it's just an incredibly common condition that we still don't have a perfect way of diagnosing and you Liam so you're looking into babies' brains which is quite interesting too yeah what I'm interested in is neurodiversity so uh, one condition you might have heard of is autism and that's, it's a condition that affects about 1% of the population. And what's important, uh, autism is basically uh, a condition that affects how people communicate and interact with the world. And getting an autism diagnosis is really important um, so that autistic people can get the right support from, from an early age. What my work is looking at is, get, is how autistic people can get an earlier diagnosis. So at the moment, you need to show uh, behavioural signs of autism, which don't begin to show until about two years of age or later. But we know there are differences. There are there are differences in, in in brain activity between babies who go on to go on to have an autism diagnosis and those who those who don't. So what I'm interested in my research is finding a uh, a marker of autism so that the support can be put in place much earlier for babies so that we can make sure that autistic people are supported from the vet, the, the earliest possible point in life. And I think this is important. I've just got some statistics from the uh, National Autistic uh, Society. It's important to support autistic people uh, because autistic children are three times more likely to be excluded from school. And only one in six autistic people in the UK have uh, a full-time job. So it's really important to support autistic people. And what I'm trying to do in my work is find an early marker of autism so that we can put support in place from the earliest possible point. Sounds commendable. Well, I, it's it's. it's I, 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 what's interesting is I, it's, it's it's the difference between talking about why I do what I do mm. and what I actually do on a daily basis. What motivates me is thinking, right? How can we make a make this brain imaging technique? How can we get it? How can we translate it? How can we do this? 
how can we make this a useful thing? But on a day to day basis, that's what, what I do is much more technically focused. Mm. Mm. I think and that's an important distinction mm. as well that I think a, a lot of people think that research can move quite quickly. And in certain uh, certain situations, of course, it can. But in a lot of situations, it's really slow stepwise processes because mm. you have to be meticulous and you have to make sure that mm. stuff works before you take it to the wider mm. audience. And especially when it comes to technology, it's not just a case of making sure that it works from a scientific point of view, but is it user-friendly? Mm. Could a doctor use it? Will a patient tolerate it? Mm. Will mm. a parent tolerate having this done to their child? There are so many different things that have to factor in that it's not always that linear journey of I've got an idea and this is the this is my major aim. Mm. It's, it's a mm. very stepwise process. So I think, as Liam said, having that end goal to what you would love it to become is so important for mm. a lot of researchers to mm. really help maintain your focus and, and your drive to get to that. Charlotte, how did you end up in this field? How did you end up doing what you do? Yeah, as I think you said at the beginning, I come from an unusual background in that I trained as a veterinary surgeon and I had the best time at vet school. I found the first two years very tricky and did something called intercalate, which means that after your first two years, you are able to go and do another course for a year. And in that year, I came to UCL and I did an intercalated degree in medical physics and bioengineering for a year. And ironically, as Liam's research first experience of research was in my research group my first experience of research was actually in Liam's <laughs> no current research group so we both have an understanding of, yeah. of what each other do because we've actually both done research within that field as an undergraduate which is quite nice as well so I went back to vet school finished my degree and in 2011 I qualified and went into equine practice so equine encompasses essentially horses and donkeys and zebras but mm. as you can imagine most of what I did was was horses with the odd spattering of of a donkey I do love a donkey <laughs> and I had a great time in practice but I realized probably within a couple of years that it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and that I wanted to do something a bit different mm -hmm. and I spent some time volunteering in a biomedical research lab so again I just thought well I'm a biologist so I'll do biology mm -hmm. and then this research PhD position came up at UCL in medical physics and I thought that sounds really interesting and they wanted someone with a physics and a maths background and I thought I have neither of those things <laughs> but this still sounds interesting somewhere in the title of the PhD I think mentioned biological tissue and I thought <laughs> I can do that, yeah. I can do that bit <laughs> so spoke to the supervisor um, thinking they are just gonna laugh me away and they said I mean there's no reason why not so I applied and much to my absolute shock I got offered the position and I guess you could say the rest is history and that I've carved my way through this slightly unusual physics background from I still consider myself a biologist I still find it very difficult to call myself anything other than a biologist mm. I'm a biologist who does a bit of physics on the side I suppose <laughs> just think that's what I love about this field is that we work with such 
a breadth of people. Like in my group, we've got, we've had in the past material scientists, we've had physicists, we've got engineers. I think we've got a civil, I think one of them is civil engineer. He's going to listen to this and be like, I'm not a civil engineer. I'm pretty sure one is a civil engineer. And we've got pure physicists. We've got people from like an astrophysics background. You've got me as the sole biologist. We had a medical student before. We've had so many different people from so many different Mm. backgrounds and everyone brings something unique to the table and that's what's so wonderful about healthcare engineering I think is that it is such an open box of ideas and thoughts that all amalgamate together to create these amazing solutions. So um, Liam we've heard of Charlotte's kind of background into getting into this field what was your kind of background? Little Into what I do into looking at babies brains I was a baby once. Um, Were you? And so, Surprising. So I, 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 I bring it's a grown this up. adult now. <laughs> adult. I mean, that's who knows. Um, I bring this up because I had surgery as a baby. Basically, what happened, I was about seven weeks old and I was quite sick. Turns out that I had uh, what's called intestinal malnutrition. Basically, my guts are twisted and I couldn't eat anything, couldn't digest anything. Uh, and I had to have surgery and that and everything went fine. That was great. But I've got half of my uh, seven week old waist etched on me now. <laughs> and I've had that for life. And that I, and, and that is something that has really sort of inspired. Like, I don't want you to say, oh, that really inspired me because that's just cheesy. But I think it's what sparked my interest in in science, in biology, in how bodies work. And that sort of got me interested in science in general as well. So that's why I applied to do medicine and I ended up doing medicine. I left school. I, I think what I enjoyed about it was it was very sciencey, but we weren't really going in depth into the science. Whereas sort of my contemporaries were not happy because we were going into too much science and not going into how do you actually apply that? How do you do this in a clinic? So in my so I intercalated as well uh, in the medical physics department at UCL. When I was in uh, my third year at medical school, I went to the medical physics department to study the final year of a medical physics and biomedical engineering degree. R- what I loved about that was it completely changed my mindset. At medical school, it was all very memorise, 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 memorise. Whereas you come, you, you, I, I, when, I, when I was doing my intercalated year, I was, I was thinking, what well, we're actually trying to derive these equations how, that, that can tell us how we image a body part. I think it went, for, it, it, it went from medical imaging being something that's magic to, oh, I, I, can, I can see what's going on here. I really, I really enjoyed studying medical physics. And then a few months later, um, an opportunity came up to do a PhD. So we applied and got the funding for that. Um, so I did my PhD looking at, similar field looking at, at, at babies' brains, but a bit more technically focused on what I'm doing now. And... Fast forward to when I was finishing my PhD in 2021, I didn't know if I really wanted to go back into medicine. And I think the two reasons I went into medicine, I wanted to do something sciencey and I also wanted to do good for the world. I was thinking I can do this through research. And I feel like it's it's meant that I could marry physics and medicine, which is sort of a headache I had before applying for university. I think that it can be quite a difficult thing for people to get their head around when you walk away from something clinical because it's always it's always seen as like a lifelong dream to be a vet or to be a doctor. Mm. And for some people, it can be a really hard thing for them to get their head around. And certainly I was accosted at a wedding by a drunk person once <laughs> who, uh, who came up to me and went, you've totally wasted your veterinary degree. What a waste of a space. Someone else who wanted to be a vet could have done that. And to those kind of people, I've not wasted my degree at all. I'm just doing something slightly different with it. First and foremost, I'm a scientist and Mm. 
I'm a clinical scientist. Yes, I'm a clinically trained scientist, but I'm a scientist. And I absolutely wouldn't be where I am today with the thought processes that I have, with the unique research ideas that I have, with the ability to work through problems in a unique, very me way that I have if I hadn't have done the training. So, no, I don't think that people like us who have maybe taken a sidestep are wasting a space or have wasted a degree or anything like that. I think we're just using it in a slightly more unique way, I suppose. Unusual is probably the better word for it. I like the word unique. I prefer unique. (laughs) It makes us sound way more I would say that you guys are making an a, a complete difference in the world like you know attendance like mm. I think you were saying how much money we save the NHS if we can find more viable ways of looking at tendons and tendon injuries yeah so and, and with yeah. autism like that's a way of living that's a way of life like completely making a difference yeah. in the world so it's just know. a different way instead of making a difference to an individual person who is stood in front of me and their animal which I had an amazing time doing for three and a half four years I'm hopefully making a bit more of a difference on a smaller difference maybe but on a mass scale and so it's it's just a different way of making a difference and neither is better or worse than the other they are both very different without clinicians I couldn't do my job Mm -hmm. because the problems wouldn't be there and without scientists clinicians couldn't do their job because the solutions wouldn't be there so one provides the problem and the other provides the solution that guy needs to listen to this podcast he really does So I guess what I've learned from this is that you don't need to fit the traditional mould to be a healthcare engineer. And also super interesting to know how many different ways there are to look into our bodies, especially with the human brain and with ligaments, like things that we don't really think about really at all. So thank you guys. Thank you guys for introducing me to a lot of ways of looking into the body and blowing my mind in different ways. (laughs) Um, It's all right. Liam can look into that for you. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm a bit too old for your research, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think your brain's a bit too big. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think that. Okay, that's that's a good way of saying it. Uh, Yeah, so thank you guys for joining us. And Liam, you said you speak fluent Welsh. I do. So do you want to do the outro for us? Diolch i adre am rando heddi. Fi yw Liam, dyma Charlotte ac yn eistedd yn ein cymferbyn mae Ffydws. Enw'r gyfres hon yw Iechyd mewn basged law, podlediad gan y sefydliad peryaneg Iechyd. Os oedd y rhaglen heddi yn ddiddorol, rhannwch gyda ffrindiau ac teuluoedd. Rhyn ar gael ym Hobman a grandewch arnyn ni yn un man. It sounded really nice. Sounds so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I understood the Liam Charlotte. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah I understood my name. <laughs> Health in a Handbasket is produced by UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering and edited by Keris Bradley. The Institute of Healthcare Engineering brings together leading researchers to develop the tools and devices that will make your life better. We're using this podcast to share all the amazing work taking place. You can learn more by searching UCL Health in a Handbasket or following the link in the show notes. So share with your friends and family if you found this interesting. We're available everywhere, especially where you just listen to us.